Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring the deeper mysteries of life, faith and meaning. My name's Dom Fay and this is a special edition of the podcast in which Sue Wilton and I were fortunate enough to sit down with author William Paul Young for a fascinating conversation about shame and the ways in which it can hold us back from a flourishing life and how to start the journey towards believing that you are good, loved and worthy as well as many other topics that emerged throughout the chat. Just a few things before we get to the conversation with Paul Young. Uh, We do have some really exciting episodes coming shortly into your podcast feed, including Bishop Stephen Pickard talking about the need to slow down in our meaning-making quests and what can be gained through going at a slower pace, and Professor Ellen Cherry from the Princeton Theological Seminary discussing the link between faith and joy and how to discover a richer happiness in our lives, among many other conversations that we hope you'll find life-giving in some way. To keep across the latest podcasts, make sure you've liked the On The Way Facebook page, which you can find by going to facebook.com slash Way, or by searching for the On The Way podcast. You can also subscribe on iTunes, and while you're there, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review if you've enjoyed the podcast, to help other people discover it as well. Lastly, Paul Young is in Australia promoting a new film, The Heart of Man, which focuses largely on his own personal struggles with shame and brokenness, and finding healing and redemption through that. The film is in cinemas nationally for two nights only, on Tuesday the 26th and Wednesday the 27th of June, and you can find out more information on that at heartofmanmovie.com.au. Well, that's all the housekeeping done. Now let's uh, get to our conversation with Paul Young. We've gone off-site today for the On The Way podcast. We are sitting in the boardroom at Event Cinemas Garden City in Brisbane uh, as we're joined by uh, author William Paul Young. Thank you so much, Paul, for making time for us. Absolutely honoured to be here. Um, You've had quite a day before this podcast. We've just been discussing it. Um, This was going to be an afternoon record, but you've spent the afternoon getting yourself acquainted with Queensland's peak hour traffic. Well, it's more than peak hour traffic. It was, there was an accident along the way and, and we sort of got held up for an extra hour or so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> how, do you, how do you stay patient in those moments? You tell stories. You tell stories. <laughs> so we told a lot of stories. It was great. <laughs> That's great. Well, obviously you are the author of many books, Lies We Believe About God, Eve, Crossroads, and uh, most famously, um, The Shack, which yes. has uh, impacted many people. I'm one of the many uh, who, who uh, feel quite emotionally moved by the book. I imagine you get hugged a lot when you go places. People just throw their arms around you. They do. And it's, it's such an honor. You know, I didn't ever, I never intended to be a published author. It mm. was not on my bucket list. And um, to, uh, to have given a gift to my family that has spilled over like this, mm. it's... Um, it's such an honor to be a part of that. You get to walk on the holy ground of other people's stories mm. and see how something that you did um, and, and that did everything you wanted it to do has now spilled over into the, mm. into the stories of others. It's pretty remarkable. It's a, a tremendous book and film adaptation as well. I, I love the adaptation. I don't mind admitting yeah. I teared up numerous times in the film adaptation. <laughs> so did I. Um, yeah. Octavia Spencer's performance in particular. Far out. That got me. Yes, but the kitchen scene, for example. Yes. Oh, oh my The goodness. tears in her eyes there. Yep. Oh. Yeah, that was for Beautiful. real. Beautiful. And she has a faith background, you know, and uh, so this was an incredibly meaningful role for her mm. uh, in her own words, but 
Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, there's so many areas we could go in today's conversation. I think we could roll for about 10 hours if we had it, to be um, honest. Prob- um, probably. <laughs> so we'll, we'll see what emerges. But um, you are out in Australia for uh, a new film, The Heart of Man, um, which is largely about shame and, and I guess how shame can lock us down and get us quite stuck, uh, mm-hmm. certainly in any sort of a faith life, especially... Um, and how many of us, I guess, are trapped in repetitive monologues of shame and often our faith life just reinforces those rather than liberating us from them. Um, just as I guess, a starting point, Paul, what, what do you think, what is the damage that you think shame is doing? Well, let's make a distinction between shame and guilt right off the bat. You know, guilt is I've done something wrong and we have to own that. Shame is I am something wrong. And a lot of our Um, theological upbringing for many of us uh, reinforce the idea that uh, at the deepest core of our being the truth of our being was that we were damaged goods you know that that something was wrong with us Mm -hmm. Um, it was in our songs it was in our uh, preaching it was in our theology and um, you start with total depravity like total depravity you have nothing to build on and so the the issue with shame is it not only dominates the religious world because it has to create a sense of separation between you and God for religion to actually exist, but it also dominates uh, the world of performance and expectation, you know? And so we live in a world that's driven largely by shame. You have whole cultures that are face-based cultures. That is, I want to put the best presentation of myself, but underneath it, I feel like I'm just a piece of garbage. Mm-hmm. And, um, and shame is powerfully embedded in the ways that we look at ourselves you know the i am not i am not smart enough i'm not enough i'm not a boy i'm not you know what are add the i am nots that that are in your internal list mm-hmm. and they're all coming from a sense that um the truth of my being is something that is not good and so shame is incredibly powerful and and then you get locked into addictive behaviors or you've been damaged as a child Uh, You've been abused, you've been abandoned, and now you're trying to cover up your losses by performance. Um, The intention of God was never never that we existed covered up, but Mm -hmm. that we be authentically whole and open, uncovered, naked, and unashamed in that sense. Do you know, do you have a specific, I guess, memory time of your life where you felt um, that you were something wrong? Oh, it dominated my life, you know. So I'm a missionary kid, preacher's kid, firstborn, um, in a holiness, reformed sort of, you know, Christian, uh, modern evangelical background. And um, so as a child, I'm, I'm a year old. We, I grew up in the highlands of New Guinea, just north of here, um, missionary kid in Erie and Jaya, and uh, now West Papua. Um, and... Uh, my father was a very angry man, young man. I didn't know that he was utterly damaged in his childhood. Um, and he had had a massive encounter with Jesus, but it, it hadn't, you know, healed his heart. Um, he was part of a generation that didn't even know they had baggage, you know, and wouldn't have known what to do with it if they'd have known. Mm. Um, and uh, so he was a violent disciplinarian. So my earliest memories are trying to defend myself against his rage. And and the way that I did it was to scream at him three words, I'll be good. Mm-hmm. And every time a child will scream, I'll be good, they're reinforcing, 
I'm not good. Mm. And it's, it's like the promise. If you just give me one more chance, you know, which then haunted me the rest of my uh, early years because it was my relationship with God was like that. I'll be good. Just give me one more chance. Couple that with sexual abuse that started in the tribal culture before I was five. And then I was sent to boarding school, missionary boarding school at six. And the big boys would come at night and molest the little boys. There's something so insidious about sexual abuse. It violates um, the profound sense of being at the core. And it rips the fabric of the human soul apart. And, uh, and that embedded shame. So what do you do? How do you survive? Well, you're disgusted with yourself. You think, therefore, God must be also disgusted with you. And so you begin to live a life of performance. You try to win the affection and approval of whoever's in front of you through any means necessary, you know, and you become a false person. And at the same time as when people give you attention or kindness, um, you don't believe them because they don't know what secrets you hold. And that's the, some of the imagery of the shack is that, right? Mm -hmm. you, you have the place you're stuck, which is the broken soul, the broken heart. And, and that's where the center of your pain is. So what do you do? You begin to hide all your secrets there. You store your addictions there. You never want to invite anybody into that place. That's what shame does. It isolates you. And that's one of the most powerful impacts of shame. It pushes you into aloneness and away from relationships. Mm. And it's crazy is that relationships are largely what drives us into shame uh, in one way or the other. But our healing is only, only going to come through relationships. And, and that's going to take risk and trust. Yeah. It's interesting that shame pushes us into hiding, you know, in, in a way that, that guilt doesn't. You know, guilt guilt we can actually do something with. Shame will – we. Um, I know Brene Brown's work, she talks about being in shame and she's got some brilliant work out there. But, yes. Um, and she says we're not fit for human consumption when we're in shame. And I think we can all – we've all experienced that, that sense of we're not ourselves and we start to hear what other people say differently. We, you know, as you say, they can, they can compliment us, they can affirm us, they can love us, but it has so much trouble breaking through because we hear it differently yeah. um, and we, we just, it just can't make it, make it through that, that great barrier. And I think the, uh, you know, the statistics point to and the research points to violence, all violence having, you know, when we look at, at offenders and repeat offenders, you know, we can point to other social factors, poverty and addiction and things. But the really consistent factor that leads to violence is shame. Absolutely. So, you know, just to use secrets as which also drives us to isolation. As an example, we're absolutely caught and trapped by secrets. You know, I can't tell you what's going on in my life because I'm terrified that that I will see the look of disgust on your face the way that I see it in the mirror. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I hide, right? I cover up um, my sense of worthlessness through performance of one sort or another. And in fact, shame and, and arrogance or pride, they, they present themselves almost the same. same. Yes. Yeah. yeah. They look the same. Mm -hmm. And so people would have thought, you know, he's a good guy, but he's quite arrogant. Mm -hmm. And, and the truth of it was I didn't feel better than anyone. I felt absolutely worthless. Mm -hmm. So secrets keep us hidden. Mm. But then I still need affection. I still need approval. I still, there are things that give me little moments of life. Mm. And so when you offer that to me, 
I actually don't believe it's true because you don't know my secrets. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm yes, utterly trapped. Yes. I can't tell you my secrets because yes. I can't take the risk. Yeah. But then if you offer me the things that keep me alive, I don't believe you, yeah, you because you don't there. know the secrets. Yeah. yeah. I suppose this conversation is largely centers around how do we heal the human soul, Paul, which is another question you've uh, spoken a bit about uh, in a few videos of yours I've seen on YouTube. And so as a good, I guess, roadmap of that, I thought maybe it'd be interesting to know how you healed your human soul because I, I heard you speak once about... An email you received after the shack, and for those who are familiar with the storyline, they'll know um, what I'm talking about here, where somebody told you that their sense was that um, Mackenzie's daughter, Missy, who gets murdered, um, represents something... Something murdered in me as a child. Yeah. Probably my innocence. Yeah. And Mackenzie was using an adult trying to deal with that. Correct. And that's why when I wrote the shack, Mackenzie Allen Phillips spells map, Mm. but so does Melissa Ann Phillips, Missy. Mm. Right. They both spell map. And I did it on purpose because um, I'm both of those. Right. I'm both Mackenzie and I'm the child that was murdered. Mm. Um, And so when she pointed that out, I showed it to Kim and she said, boy, you know, she absolutely hit it on the head. This Mm. is exactly, you know, and we've had the losses in our extended family of even a five year old who, who was killed the day after her fifth birthday. And so we know those shock losses. But the layers of the storyline go far more deeply into my history. Mm. And and the healing of the soul, um, you know, what's interesting is that I was in uh, South Korea for uh, when the shack first came out. And, and it was like um, a huge m- multimedia tour. Uh, there were newspapers and television and radio and everything. And then I went back five years later for Crossroads, same kind of media events. But this time they asked me a question um, when I went back for Crossroads that never had showed up in um, going for the shack. So in five years, the culture had shifted already. And the one question that they continuously asked me in virtually every interview that on the Crossroads trip was, how do we heal the human soul? So something had shifted in the culture, which is, a, as you know, that there are Asian cultures that are very face-based, that is, my face that I present to you is more important than the authentic person that may be there. And, um, and here you have a very shame filled performance orientation culture. And they even said to me on national TV, they said, do you think we're killing our children because they have such a high suicide rate among their kids? And I said, yeah, you know, you, you are telling them that they're valuable because they can produce and perform. And, uh, and for those of us who are broken to begin with, how are, how are we going to compete in a world mm-hmm. where production becomes our value if we're already broken? The, only, the best thing we can do is try to fake our way. That's right. And then we have a theology that tells you, oh, yeah, no, it's true. You are a piece of crap, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that, is, that is not only not helpful, it's diabol- diabolical and uh, incredibly destructive. Oh, yeah, when if, if you if you mix religion and shame, you know if if that when those things are tied together, it's 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 doubly triply powerful, you know. And uh, it, it, I agree with you. I think it, it's not only diabolical; it's blasphemous because it is anti-gospel. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know. And so um, my friend Baxter, who's a theologian, has this line that says, "Wholeness is when the way of your being matches the truth of your being." You know, and so the question is, what's the truth of your being? Mm-hmm. Well, if I'm told the truth of my being is that I'm a worthless piece of garbage, mm-hmm. how am I supposed to how am I supposed to get to a place where my life reflects, you know, mm-hmm. some kind of wholeness? Mm-hmm. And you you can't. Mm-hmm. All you can do is 
pretend or cover up or perform. And so there's a lot of folks out there, and that's the way I was, that are trying to perform into the affection of God. Mm. And it's like, we can't do this. It mm. doesn't work. Mm. And at some point, you're so exhausted, you just give up. Mm. And then you begin to act out what you believe in your heart about yourself, mm. that you are worthless. And of course, that fits with culture too, that sort of transactional idea in culture that you have to do something, trade something, be able to have something to offer in order to be rewarded in some way. And so yeah. we're just merging. It means that religion just merges with, with culture, and yeah. specifically Western yeah. consumerist culture too. Yeah, and it's so different to, to realize that the truth of our being is that we're made in the image and likeness of God. And that's truer about us than any of the damage that has happened in our histories. Mm-hmm. And uh, once we begin to see, like, wait, you can't have an I am not without an I am to begin with. You know, there has to be something that's real there. The immortal diamond, as Richard Rohr would say. Or, um, so the truth of my being is I'm, I'm kind and I'm good and I'm pure of heart. And when I begin to, to recognize that that's the truth of my being underneath all that has happened to me and all that I have participated in myself, then, then I have something that I can build on. And the way of my being can naturally match the truth of my being. I think we do see just how much this is hurting society. I mean, there's a lot of talk about the loneliness epidemic. I know in the UK they've appointed a minister for loneliness. was a big talking point recently. The mental health and suicide rates, which are always... Mother Teresa's statement that it is the dominant disease of the West. Yeah, the poverty of the West. And I suppose the shame is... What's stopping us connecting vulnerably? I mean, there's, there's, it's a multifaceted issue, I guess, when you throw in social media and lack of authentic connections and, and things like that. But I'm just interested by, I guess, this idea that a lot of people who are brought up in religion, which is meant to be the thing that liberates you, that shows you you're loved, why they end up being the ones who are more trapped by shame than anybody else. Because you've added the whole dimension of God on top of what is already expected of you. So you've got all the cultural stuff that everybody else has to deal with, Mm. plus you've got all now the God stuff. And it's like, why would I go to a, a gathering of people and feel worse about myself than I already do? And so you're right. The gospel never was your worthless piece of garbage. That was never the gospel, but it has become the gospel. Mm. And, and religion requires a sense of separation. You know, you can't have religion without separation. And, um, and the gospel is, there's not been separation. You're created in Christ. You're, yeah. you're included in the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, whether you know it or not. And you're, you're never going to meet someone who is not already in relationship with Jesus. You're not, because... He's the creator, and not anything that has come into being has come into being apart from him, right? And nothing Mm -hmm. can separate you from the love of God, not life, nor death, nor the present, nor the future, nor any created thing. And, and, and religion says, no, 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 you're separated, and we can help you get unseparated. You just, you know... Give us your time and blood and sweat and tears and money, and we will get you unseparated. It's amazing, isn't it, when you can get a statement like that that, that says there is no, nothing, nothing that can separate you from the love of God. How many centuries have we spent trying to build up things that could potentially separate? It is, it is hard to comprehend when, you, you can, when the good news is that clear. You know, how do we get it so wrong? Yeah, mm. because we filter then the good news through our experience and we go like, but... This is what I grew up with, you know, and and all of a sudden we're now 
changing the gospel to some mm. kind of performance orientation. Mm. Yeah. So I, I think um, one of the main reasons the shack was, was so moving for so many people in my view is because of how relational it is, how, yeah. um, you know, suddenly God didn't seem this distant, I guess, figure to uh, impress or, or get approval from, but actually something so inherently connected to us. Um, and that disconnection, I think, is probably at the root of, of all of this spiritual sickness that we're talking about, that, yeah. that God has to be accessed in some way, not is already accessed. How, how did you come to, I guess, learn that? Because I imagine with what you're saying about your background, you were brought up with a lot of what we're talking about being these problems. Absolutely. Yes. Um, so I grew up with G.O.D., that, that God who is the unreachable, unknowable, you know, uh, watching from the infinite distance of a disapproving heart. God and uh, the alone God. He actually was the God the Father was the God behind Jesus mm-hmm. that you really needed to deal with. You know, Jesus came to save you from that God, mm-hmm. right? And so it was Jesus that stood between you and God the Father. Jesus didn't need a sacrifice, but God the Father does. Jesus um, doesn't doesn't need uh, for for you to you know be humiliated or grovel or whatever, but somehow God the Father does. And so you've got a split personality. It's good cult, bad cult. Yeah, and it's a hierarchy, right? Yeah. So so part of my journey in, in dealing with my own abuse and dealing with being inside of a religious system um, that was very hierarchical uh, was to ask the question, how come men are in charge when, when they seem to have caused most of the damage in the world? And scripture would say, through one man. It wasn't through Eve, it wasn't through Satan. Through one man, the brokenness of the cosmos came into being, right? And it puts it squarely on Adam. And I'm going like, okay, so if men are so obviously more messed up than women, how come they're in charge? And it was the issue of women that drove me into the questions about the Trinity and the questions about relationship, because women seem to have a fundamental in general terms, uh, they shifted toward relationships so much easier than the men that I knew. And um, the men were always about the ground and the works of their hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I'm going like, what is this? And how how do I, what I had done is become an intellectual rationalist. You know, I'd, I'd gone to hide in my head like so many people do in the West because our hearts are broken. And we don't want to deal with them, so we just go find out how to be, how to talk smart, and how to argue, and how to debate, and we live in our heads where the rest of our lives are just shattered. That's the shack, right? That's the place on the inside that is so broken. We don't want to invite anybody in there, mm-hmm. and we we're presenting ourselves from our heads, and and so there was a huge disconnect between my heart and my head, and yet things penetrated there. Music did. Mm-hmm and rainstorms did and the beauty of creation did and so i'm caught by wonder on the one hand i have this deep longing for to be an authentic human being and i can't get there and um, so i continue to perform drag it into my marriage drag it into my relationships and then ultimately um, the severe mercy is exposure where you know your outside world and your inside world meet and and it collapses the whole house of cards goes down and that's what happened to me and that that became the avenue for either suicide or the process of restoration and um and that i mean we we go into details about what that means 
for me personally, but that was the journey for me. That's what blew my world apart was the fact that I couldn't keep performing and, and hiding all my secrets. I love the fact you use the phrase severe mercy, you know, yeah. because I think that that idea of that exposure, that being transparent before God um, is you know, utterly terrifying mm. on some levels, you yeah. know, but utterly full of mercy and compassion. And we often talk about the fact that even we turn repentance into a work as well um, and neglect the fact that, that it's God's love that comes first. Yeah. It's always Christ for you, God reaching for you in love first, that then our response is repentance, you know, that it does take going, facing that kind of transparency before God, which is, you know, um, awful in the sense of yeah. awful with an E in it. You know? mm, yeah. And it's, you know, the un exposed is the unhealed yes you know and we are as sick as the secrets we keep yes yeah? absolutely so yeah you know Brene has speaking mm-hmm. of Brene Brown mm-hmm. she has that couplet that I love that is you know if you don't own your own story it will own you mm-hmm. but if you do own your own story you will have the right to to write the ending yes. you will have the authority to write the ending mm-hmm. and a, a lot of us have never owned our own stories mm-hmm. we are we're just owned by them yes. and we continue just to slog our way through life trying to hope that something will finally work. Mm. But at some point, God has to expose us, not to humiliate us, but in order to open up a pathway toward freedom. When it says that the Holy Spirit has come to convict the world of sin, that word convict in the Greek is expose. Mm-hmm. And so the, the intention of the Holy Spirit is to expose us in order that healing is possible. Mm-hmm. Because if you're hidden, if you keep the secrets, you will... God won't go in there and rip them out of your hands. No, no. You know, you have to participate in, in the process. And the freedom, that's part of the freedom too. Yep. The, the, yep. the freedom in the, in, uh, in the invitation, but there's also, of course, incredible liberation in the transparency yeah, and the vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite quotes of yours, Paul, is that you said a few times that God is not a God who will stand idly by while anything that is not of love's kind remains unchallenged, which is an amazing uh, insight and I, I think that ties into your view about the and, and it's the best interpretation I've heard about the wrath of God um, yeah. that we've so often come to view that as being this this thing that either will completely dismiss you know God is this passive person who's just sitting in a par- on a park bench correct or God is furious at me and the world and geez I better do the right thing or you know the baseball bat's coming out yeah yeah I I'm convinced in my own heart now that the the wrath of God is the love of God that is opposed to anything that hurts or damages the ones he loves. Mm-hmm. And and this is true for me as a parent. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a daughter who's been fighting a brain tumor for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And um, and because of that little tumor in her on the backside of her pituitary gland, she began to believe about herself that she was damaged goods. Mm-hmm. And that led her into a very difficult season of her life in, in which she was incredibly vulnerable um, to some not so good things. I'm her dad. You give me the right to go in and be a fiery fury and destroy that piece of tissue, I'd do it in a heartbeat. And, and, and even more so to destroy the lie that had been whispered uh, in her own inner world that she was not enough. Um, I would, I would destroy that. Mm. Um, but it, but it's not because she has disappointed me or not lived up to my expectations. That's got nothing to do with it at all. It's because I love her and I'm opposed to anything that hurts her. Right. So where does that kind of love originate? 
It comes from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is a this is a fury that is on our behalf. And but if God just stands idly by, as if your choices and the consequences of them don't really matter, then what kind of a what kind of a God? Where's justice in that? Where is wholeness in that? It doesn't exist. So it's a it's a loose paraphrase of a George McDonald statement that this is a, a God who will not stand idly by while anything that is not of love's kind remains in us. And, um, and that is the promise of God, mm-hmm. that he will be a fire. And if you want to hold on to your darkness, that fiery fury of love will be held to you. Mm-hmm. And if you want to let go of your darkness, that fiery fury of love will be heaven to you. Mm-hmm. And um, we think in terms of separation. We think of in terms of hell as separation. And it's not. It's, it's actively in the presence of the God who is a fiery love. And it's like... All right, that's that's not going to go away. You're not powerful enough to separate yourself from that, and uh, so it's this is an ongoing conversation that you are going to continue to have with a God who who pursues you because this God loves you, whether you know it or not. At some stage, obviously, you you made the shift from as you describe it, living with an underlying volume of shame so deep and loud that it constantly threatened any sense of sanity, to what we see in the shack is this incredibly warm. A yeah. relational idea of God, Papa, the the name yeah. which is, I think, has um, moved so many people. Mm-hmm. That that concept of God. Um, do you remember when I guess the damn wall burst? When that that moment where you first felt that warm relational connection was? Now, I think we have sort of a windshield wiper inside of our soul, and that you know sometimes we have a sense of the goodness of God and the kindness of God. And then something happens and we're instantly, the windshield wiper goes the other direction to that G-O-D distant mm-hmm. deity that's in the background there. Mm. And and we're kind of flogged between these two visions of God. Um, uh, so it's not that I can look back and say there was a time where I never felt that sense of the goodness, but I was caught between these two views of God. Mm. And... Um, and that singular God who does not love by nature, and now I've got to trip his love wire and keep it tripped, you know, so that, so that I, you know, that he continues to show affection to me and doesn't, doesn't beat me up like he did his own son, you know, mm. that kind of mm. crazy thinking. Um, but, but the consistency of knowing that God is good all the time, never the author of evil ever, and is relentlessly in love with me, especially fond of me phrase, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That took a lot of years to get to. I had to unwind so many lies in my life um, where I mistrusted the character of God because I painted God with the brush of my own father. You know, one of my lines um, that has become significant and continues to be for me is that it took me all of 50 years to wipe the face of my father completely off the face of God. Mm. So much of my damage with my dad, I then splashed onto God's face. And as, and as soon as God becomes someone who you cannot trust, then you're back to religious performance mm. and, um, and you don't have that sense of affection. So it's a process like like you know as much as we would like extreme soul makeover right that give us a blue or red pill or something you know and this is we're too incredibly crafted for quick fixes 
And, and, and I think one of the things we need to understand clearly is that the, the process of transformation is not where you become something that you were not before. It's about uncovering the truth of who you've been the whole time. It's just that we've lost sight of that. And, and the revelation of Jesus in the incarnation is to tell us, you can look at my life. This is Jesus. You can look at Jesus's life and see the truth of who you are as a human being. And the fruit of the Spirit is a declaration of who you are as a human being made in the likeness and image of God. So in terms of dismantling my, the, the dark things, the damage, it took therapy, it took um, letting people in, mm -hmm. it took, you know, because you cannot come to healing in isolation. Mm -hmm. It just does not happen. Yes, yes. Um, you have to begin to take the risk of trust, which is way messier than religion. I mean, religion, you don't act... You don't actually have to trust God. You just have to know what God requires and try to perform your yourself up to that level, you know. But relationship, that's different. And, and I think that uncovering your true self is such a lifelong quest. And, as, and I was going to make the same point that, like, we can't do it on our own. Yeah. So you do it in the company of others who are also on that lifelong quest. There is still that subjective experience that you have to have of, of nakedness before God. Yes. That's still there. But you but you go on that journey then with others. And it's in that company, in that community, in that fellowship with others that you then learn more of who you really are. That uncovering yeah. process yeah. Keeps, so good. So keeps good. happening, which is where true religion can fit in if I want to sure. let's throw that word in front of it you know that sure, sure. that sense of that struggle and, and the messing around we do as human beings working out how we do this relational journey ourselves with God but then ourselves with one another yeah and some of the lies are so deep that we can't even recognize in ourselves so we need someone to tell us the truth and and that's that's why in part why we need to be in relationship why we need to have lives that are are open to someone mm -hmm. and um, so when people ask about the healing of the soul mm -hmm. one of the essential elements is you've got to let somebody in mm -hmm. and and not just you know think that you can come to wholeness without anybody else finding out about it mm -hmm. you know that because that's a shame statement right mm -hmm. and it's like no I have to become exposed yes. and 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 then see someone who is God with skin on yes who tells me the truth yes. about who I am and and I think the beauty, the gentleness of God is such that I mean we have times in our life when there is a dramatic exposure sometimes but there's other times that are just gentle and that, absolutely. that with other people you, a little bit at a time a little bit of time you're sort of uncovering the layers yeah. of who you are with the help of others and with the with some courage to be yeah. yourself and then you notice that your responses become different how you deal with things or how quickly, you know, I can still get triggered, but what used to take me six months takes me six hours, yes. you know, and you realize I have moved so far yeah. from where I was, you know, I don't need my survival mechanisms. I don't need my hypervigilance. I don't need my, you know, hiding knives inside words, you know, that kind of stuff. I just don't need any of those things anymore. I just want to touch on that line you mentioned, which is all through the shack, the I'm especially fond of you, right. especially fond of them, which um, certainly meant a lot to me. And I think the reason that that stands out is because it was the first time in my life, even as a pastor's kid, where God's love was actually about me, not about God. Because Correct. Before that, I guess God God loves you, but that's that was more, that actually in some ways reinforced the shame because how good's God? And exactly right. <laughs> um, rather yeah. than it being a statement about me. And yep. I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding that people are missing. I think you're right. And, uh, and that's why I use that phrase is because it moved it from subject to object. Mm. You know, God loves you is about God. God's the subject. 
but I'm especially fond of you. That's about the object. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the way I love my kids or my grandkids. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's the uniqueness of who you are. I love you because you exist, mm-hmm. not because you've performed, not because of anything else, that you exist, mm-hmm. you. And, and the beauty of, of God is that God knows the truth, the depth of the truth of who you are, the uniqueness of who you are, how your genetics and your family tradition and your history and your experiences all wound itself into this manifestation of of the character and nature of god that is represented by your life Mm. and um and it's like no it's it's you that i love and you're right for i'm i'm a preacher's kid too and there was no sense of that in fact you're right about the shame side god loves you in spite of the fact (laughs) that you are you know even and though, even though yeah, you should be grateful. Yeah, this yes. is not. Yeah. yeah, God loves you not because of who you are, but because of who God is. I mean, yeah. that's what we were told. Yeah. And it's like, yes, oh, right. so, yes, yeah, so God loves a piece of crap, mm-hmm. you know, but that's not the truth. The truth mm-hmm. is God loves you because you are worthy of being loved. Mm-hmm. You are made in the image and likeness of God. And God loves the particular bent that you are, the mm-hmm. fact that you laugh at certain jokes when nobody yes. else does, the fact that mm-hmm. you like certain kinds of flavors of ice cream. Mm-hmm. You know, this is all wrapped into the uniqueness of yes. who you are. And that's true about my kids. Yes. You know, those, it comes from like, which of your children do you love the best? You know, and it's like, oh, it's the one I'm thinking about it right now, you know, <laughs> and that's the one I love the most. But it's, but every one of my children, I have a completely different relationship with because yes, of the uniqueness unique. of who they are tied into the uniqueness of who I am. Mm-hmm. And out of that comes something that is utterly, utterly new, that's utterly right. new. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, um, I think most of the damage of this world is done by people not feeling they are worthy of love um, at a core level. And whether that's, you know, shame, insecurities, all of these things, there's yeah. a fundamental belief I am not worthy of love. Everyone else might be, but I've got to hide away in my little cave because, you know, yeah. if people saw this, if people saw this, yeah. geez, they'd go running. Exactly. How does a person begin the journey to, to realize you, you find someone that you think might be safe, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And for a lot of us, that's a therapist because mm-hmm. They have a professional obligation to be safe, mm-hmm. you know, and and um, and for a lot of us, that's the that's the first road. It should have been the pastor. It should have been the priest. It should have been, you know, and then you find out that it's not safe. And um, but you have to begin somewhere. And so the question is, who in your world do you think is safe enough to be real with? Begin there. Mm-hmm. And if you can't find someone in your world, then find a good therapist, you know, and um, and then that will, as you grow in the ability to trust one, one voice, mm-hmm. that will allow you to begin to trust other voices as well as your own. Yeah. Because mm. I think you don't, unless you have someone else to bounce it off, you don't ever get to interrogate some of the thoughts that you have believed to be true from your childhood. Yeah. You know, that are sitting there, th- things that you think that you've, you've inherently are wrong about you or that you have said or done or you think, I can't ever expose that. And, and then you, if you actually have someone else who can hold that mirror up, suddenly it, yeah. you, you see actually it's very normal you know yeah. <laughs> or it, it's very w- predictable because you have some basic needs of love of companionship you have some basic needs of just affiliative and being of value in the world yeah and human beings do all kinds of convoluted things to try and meet those needs and the beauty of of, of someone who's sitting next to you who is the safe person is that they can go hey 
you know yeah. that's what you you sound like a human being I, yeah. I did a conference last summer with Richard Rohr on the Trinity and uh, in Albuquerque and we're driving along before the conference began and he said he says you know this might be a really strange thing to hear from a celibate uh, monk and um, but he said I'm convinced after all these years that the greatest gift that God ever gave the human race uh, was marriage uh, as a crucible for transformation because it it forces you into a relationship with another person and all of your stuff will come to the surface it will be exposed in a way that there's a possibility of healing and he says yes we've done very great injustices to marriage and everything else but in terms of its core um, placement of one person in face-to-face uh, communion with another person, it becomes this monumental crucible. Your 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 stuff will show up. Stuff that you didn't even know about mm-hmm. will will show up. Your propensity to control. And there's another point that that you were making earlier, and that was that fear is connected to how we perceive God's love for us. To the degree that we have fear in our lives, to that degree we don't know that we're loved. Mm-hmm. And that's First John, right? Perfect love casts out fear. There is no fear in love, you know, and, and uh, the one who fears is not perfected in love. And that's another one of those big statements, again, that somehow we've managed to miss. You know, there's no fear in love and God is love. Yeah. You know, so, you know that, that we have nothing to be fearful of. Yeah. So Jesus comes to tell us what the Father is like, you know, and to use Richard Rohr again, um, Jesus doesn't come to change God's mind about human mm-hmm. beings, but to change our minds about God. Yes. And so he, he becomes, you see me, you've seen the Father. I don't say anything unless I hear the Father say it. Mm-hmm. And he's all talking about relationship. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we go, thank you very much, Jesus. But, uh, you know, I don't really believe that's true. I believe in Zeus, yes. you know, that distant deity who doesn't really love by nature. Mm-hmm. And I go back to performance orientation. In the, the shack, you describe forgiveness as letting go of another person's throat. throat. And, and I think with shame, um, when I was, I guess, preparing for this conversation, I realized how many of us are holding on to our own throats. Yes. And, um, and the wisdom that I, I think when you, you read a verse, like, let's say, when it says, judge not, lest ye be judged, the wisdom that that's revealing that if I allow myself to judge others, it's not going to be God judging me, but suddenly I'm going to apply the same harsh metrics and criteria to my own life. Yeah. And if I think that person walking past me is fat, geez, I'm going to be weighing myself every morning yeah. to make sure that I'm not. Or if I think they're ugly, I tell you what, I'm going to start thinking that I'm ugly. And, and it suddenly becomes clear that you, you build this lifelong relationship of gripping yourself by the throat and yeah. um, causing yourself so much pain. Um, and, and I suppose what you're saying is then that the, the first step of letting go of that tight grip is, you know, talking to, to somebody, yeah. somebody safe and just saying, hey, I'm st- I, I am addicted to this. I struggle with this. I let this person down. I'm living with this secret. I guess letting the secrets out. Is that sure. the first step? Uh, oftentimes, you know, and there is no formula to this because of the uniqueness of the human soul. Mm. Um um, but there is some commonality and one of the things in terms of the, the process of the healing of the soul will be opening yourself up to the risk of relationship. Yes, it's mm-hmm. going to be key coming out of hiding, um, taking the risk of telling your secrets, you know, allowing that exposure to do its work in you. Um, that's going to be common. Those things you see all the time. You, you just cannot um, 
perform your way into wholeness. You know, mm-hmm. you, you've got to become a relational being because we're designed to be. We're made in the image of a God who's never been alone. Mm-hmm. You know, so anything that drives us to aloneness is not helpful. This is why lies are wrong because they isolate us and, and divide us and they drive us into aloneness. It's shame always even drives your eyes to the ground um, and you separate yourself from the other in that everything that is right and good is is about relationship and moves you in the direction of authenticity that is experienced inside relationship which is what was brilliant i thought about the shack when i read it when it first came out and i was in a church at the time that really was much more truly monotheist in the, in the idea of of god was god was god the father and 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 that yeah. was really didn't have that sense of god was relationship you know and i at the same time as i reading the shack i uh, had a, a wonderful jesuit priest who just leaned across one day and said and i've probably said this on the podcast before said so truth is relationship and just those three words played around in my head you know for so long and and i was able to you know and I think, I don't know if, if that was one of the big impacts of the shack, I hope, was in, in restoring a Trinitarian view of yeah, God that had got lost. And that, that's a great gift, as well as, of course, the huge gift of the fact that God the Father was depicted as a woman, which mm. hopefully broke apart a whole lot of people's paradigms. And yeah. I know we found at the, the cathedral, our, the thing that we get most in, in, that people get most irate about is, is us using feminine pronouns for God. Yeah, and uh, I know at the time when the shack came out that that was a huge breaking apart too. So you've got depicting God as restoring the Trinity to the and relationship to the heart of all things, and restoring the feminine. So I'm very grateful for that. Oh, you're and you're very welcome. It's, that's that is so deeply important to me. Um, people looked at that and they responded to Papa being a large black African American woman, and they they said this is even my mum said this is heresy. You know, and so it was cl- very close to home in terms of some of the responses. But I've spent my life uh, since I was a teenager working on the issue of, of gender issues and women and scripture. And, and, it, and it was driven there because of the abuse of my childhood and my relationship with my dad and things that just didn't make any sense. And um, to come to the place where I'm like, okay, the image of God is male, female, you know, the presentation within the context of scripture um, seems on the surface to be very masculine. But then you start looking, yes, the names of God are mostly masculine, but all the verbs are feminine. The Holy Spirit is introduced in verse 2 in feminine terms. Ruach is feminine. The Shekinah glory is feminine, right? And so God is the El Shaddai, the many-breasted one. And then uh, it's going like, Oh, it's probably a Baptist couldn't say the word breast without sinning. So, you know, came up with Lord of hosts or something, you know. So, but um, the feminine life, mercy, the word mercy that dominates the Hebrew scriptures uh, comes from the same root as womb. And then you've got a verse like, you know, no one has seen the father, but only the, the, the one who is hidden in the fathers. And we translated it bosom, but it's not. It's kolpon, which is the Greek word for womb. And so the father has a womb. And you've got this interplay mm-hmm. in which imagery doesn't define God. It's not a declaration that God is a, is a woman, but God's not a man. And or all of masculinity and all of femininity originates in the father and in the son and in the Holy Spirit. So one of the questions that comes up is, so why does Jesus come as a male? And the, and the answer is because 
he has to be the second Adam. If he doesn't come as a male, he doesn't pick up the male side of what was broken. Because eight times in the New Testament, it tells us that through one man, sin entered the world. Mm. So the presentation of God has to be masculine in order to get us all. Mm -hmm. If he'd come as a woman, he'd have picked up only the female side of of the deception that happened with Eve, mm. but not the male side of the perpetration mm. that happened with Adam. Oh. And um, so, and yeah. I, I think when it taps into shame too, that the fact that the feminine needs to be restored because for so many women, part of the shame is that they're inherently faulty because they're not male. If, if in in the church, it it can become. It, so difficult for women to see themselves as made in the image of God. Right. Because if God is man, how can you see yourself as made in the image of God? So when we, we talk about these really basic levels of shame that, have, uh, that are in our psyche, that's, that's one of them. And what's crazy is, is that women fundamentally are healthier. You know, at least in the Genesis story, when the woman turns away from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and God warns her that this is going to happen, she turns to a relationship. Mm. The man doesn't even turn to a relationship. He turns to the ground and the works of his hands. Mm. And why are they turning? And what and what purpose are they turning for? Well, they're turning away. Both are turning away from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from whom they derive identity, worth, value, significance, security, meaning, purpose, destiny, community, and love. Mm. And they're turning to what? She turns to the man and says, you give me identity, worth, value, significance, security, meaning, purpose, destiny, community, and love. And he says, I can't do it. And you trap... You trap a human being in a set of expectations that they cannot perform up to, you get fight or flight. That's the basis for shame. But at least she turns to a relationship. And when the man turns, he looks to the ground and the works of his hands for identity and worth and value and significance and security and meaning. And the ground says, can't do it, thorns and thistles. And the Genesis story is an exposure of this turning away. And, um, you know... The, the first not good is isolation, which is a sign of shame, right? Mm-hmm. And it happens before Eve is even withdrawn out of Adam. Mm-hmm. That the good, 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 very good, very good, not good. Mm-hmm. And nothing that is not good originates with God. Mm-hmm. It only originates with us. Mm-hmm. And um, so you've got Adam. It is not good that Adam be in his separation. It doesn't mean that God made a mistake and didn't create you know, Eve right from the beginning. It doesn't mean that the, the Hebrew has a phrase for being alone, like in solitude. This is not it. This is in his separation. There is an independence that happens before she's even withdrawn. And then the sense is that she is withdrawn in order to call him back to his humanity. And he dominates her, names her, doesn't name her Eve, by the way, um, names her Isha, weak and helpless. And um, she is later called Eve because she's the mother of the living, as opposed to Adam who in dying you will die, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's all this stuff going on in Genesis mm-hmm. that, so that gives us a different narrative for, for what we're, than what we're used to, which has been a narrative of shame. No, this is a narrative of a God who knows the truth of us, and yet the, this thing about our ability to say no has to be respected, mm-hmm. you know, to God. Mm-hmm. Because if our no doesn't matter, our yes doesn't matter either. And, and the protection of our ability to choose relationship becomes monumentally center, central. Mm-hmm. And God will, will sacrifice himself on the altar of our no, mm-hmm. fist in the face of, of God, mm-hmm. and in order to restore 
the connection and relationship that has always been intended. Talking about the Trinity and that relationship, for me, one of the most important scenes in the film of The Shack is of um, the the three main characters of the Trinity sitting around the table laughing together. Because I think the idea of the Trinity I was handed was a very solemn, serious sort of... They just Very sort of, religious, right? Very religious. They, they just sort of stand around, to, I don't know, together. And yeah. I, I don't really know what the point is of this. Uh, yeah. But when you see the... And I know this is a large part of Raw's work on yeah. the Trinity, is that two is, I guess, relationship, but three is joyous relationship. Yeah. And and two, two is even uh, uh, a dialectical. That mm. is that when you have two, you have either or. You know, and there's inherent division in two. Um, you have dualism. You know, you have light, dark, yin, yang, whatever you, you want to say. Three introduces an ambiguity. And three introduces, not only do I love you, but I love the one you love. And that, mm-hmm. then you have community. And so there's a huge shift between, even in like um, the language of the New Age movement, esoteric language, they're moving away from dualism towards try a, a trinity understanding, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so you're watching this happen in the culture. But this is, this is the beauty of a God who has never been alone. They are completely one. And the, and the early church struggled trying to find language to try to express the being of a God who is oneness, but three persons. So um, they came up with perichoresis. You know, it took them a few hundred years, but perichoresis is the mutual interpenetration of one with the other without the loss of personhood. So the spirit never becomes the son. The son never becomes the Mm. father. And so the distinction of personhood, which allows the interplay of play and wonder and joy that is absolutely not religious. Mm. You know, God's never been religious. Mm. You know, religion is what we've brought to the table. And, and, And God climbs into it with us because we brought it to the table. And God loves us. Mm. So the religion can do wonderful and beautiful things. It can care for people. It can educate people. It can, it can do good. But it also has this propensity for incredible damage. And, and that's because we brought it to the table. Mm. And God, you know, the beauty of God is that he can climb in and submit to our religion in order to destroy its power from the inside. Mm. He did that in the Hebrew culture you know, by adopting to a sacrificial system. God hates sacrifice. The prophets told us, you know, that, but human beings felt a need for a sacrifice from the beginning. And they, and so what does God do? He becomes the sacrifice to end sacrifice. And again, you've got this kindness of God who enters into our darkness to find us where we're stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, the cross is, the cross is our idea. It's not God's. God doesn't make crosses. Mm-hmm. You know, he, this is a torture device. And um, God's not in the business of, of creating suffering. There was no suffering in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before the incarnation, uh, before creation, sorry. And then, so we brought suffering to the table. What does God do, run from it? No, he runs into it. Mm. And, and this is a God who's not embarrassed by connecting us, with us in our suffering. Mm. And, and that becomes such a dominant theme not only in scripture, but in our own experiences. I need a God who will come find me in the, in the places that I'm lost and transform the darkness of my life into something that becomes an icon and a monument of grace. We took a, God took a torture device, a cross, 
And not only by submitting to it did he destroy its power, but then he transformed it into something that is now precious to us. Mm. What does that say about what he can do in our lives? Mm. You know, and, and that becomes so significant for me in terms of my own mm. brokenness. Mm. There's a, a few quick areas I just want to cover off as we do wrap sure. up, Paul. One of those is that I know that throughout your journey, and if you go to any YouTube video featuring you or and go yeah. to the comment section, you'll see that there are there has been, I guess, a wing of the church, a wing of the Christian faith. Which, My people. <laughs> yep, yep. Which has been... Um, a little I adversarial. Guess, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's one way to put it, that, that you know, you, you're a raging heretic to, to some, that you're, yeah. you know, reinterpreting scripture, making it palatable, whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, how have you responded to, to that? When people accuse you of that, when people, I yeah. don't know if it happens in person much, but how do you respond to that? You know, one of the beautiful things about this is that angry people are engaged people. Ambivalent people just don't care, mm. right? And so the possibility of a conversation with a, an angry person is much higher than with an ambivalent person. The other thing that is important, and I tell people this all the time, everything that mattered to me was in place before I wrote The Shack. My identity, my worth, my significance, my security, my, you know, all the things, community, love, they were all in place. So the book didn't give any of that to me. Um, when people are upset, they're not coming to tell me about me unless I think they are. Then there's a war, right? Mm -hmm. I know better. They're coming to tell me in the only language they know how about what matters to them, mm -hmm. what's important to them, and where they're stuck. Mm -hmm. They're telling me in, in language that if I'm, if I'm not at risk mm -hmm. uh, being in the middle of mm -hmm. such incredible things about who they are. And if I'm not self-defensive, if I'm not at risk in myself, which I'm not, then um, I can be present to, to those conversations. The, you know, paradigms are powerful. The paradigms are the ways, it's almost like a pair of glasses. You look through that and it defines the world for you. And uh, when you tamper with people's certainties and their paradigms, they feel like everything's shaking. And it's a hard thing when paradigms begin to shake. And, but trust me, none of us believes exactly what we do today that we did 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. you know? It's always moving. The spirit's it's always all, moving. Yeah, and, and yet we want to say, okay, now I got it. Mm. You know, This is not about getting to a place where you have perfect theology. This is about the wholeness of you as a person. Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of angry people have an angry God. A lot of people that um, um, are vicious have a vicious God. And you become like the God you believe in. Mm -hmm. And so those people who are loving, who are kind, who are generous, you'll find that they are reflecting a God who is kind and generous. Mm -hmm. um, so part of it is like, you know, check, check your language and the violence that's within it, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, and see, are, is this an expression of, of the life that is present in Jesus or is this something else? And if it's something else, it's an exhibition of some form of darkness that exists mm -hmm. in our own hearts. Mm -hmm. So um, mm -hmm. it, it truly doesn't bother me. Um, the only time it has is when people, and they've been, they've been my people, modern evangelical mm -hmm. fundamentalists, where they couldn't go after me, so they went after my kids. You know, mm -hmm. and they and it's only that's only happened with Christians, and, you know, but the religious folk have always had the furthest to go. You know, it was true at the time of Jesus. It hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. 
and and we need to understand that um that i i don't want my people to be left out mm-hmm. of this wonderful incredible gospel mm-hmm. you know but we were told a bunch of things that aren't true mm-hmm. and and they did not allow the healing of a heart when i wrote the shack i wanted to write something for my kids and say look i want you to I want you to know the God who actually showed up and healed my heart, not the God that I grew up with, mm, because the God I grew up with was never healed one damn thing in my entire heart, never showed up, you know, and, uh, but the God who did show up was contrary to the paradigms that I had created out of my own pain. And, um, and, and, and I found that wrapping the character of God inside a large black African-American woman, uh, a Jewish man, you know, mm. who'd have thought that Jesus would ever be played by a Jew, you know? <laughs> and again, my people have written me emails going like, how dare you make Jesus a Middle Easterner? <laughs> I mean, seriously. So, but, but those are my people. I don't want them left out. No, and that's, I mean, we, we will often have people come in who have to come for a funeral, say, and there are certain people who cannot enter the church. They have so much trouble because of the damage that's been done. And so when you talk about not having people left out, you know, how, how do we find ways to, to communicate that love, communicate this vision of God that is so different to the God that they've heard about. And that's always our challenge that's before us. Yeah, a lot of times it's not going to be with language. It's going to be with love of expressed in one way or the other. Mm. You know, when somebody is antagonistic and they're they're angry, sometimes the best thing is to step in and give them a hug. Mm -hmm. You know, which is, again, we live in the Western modern, you know, rational, intelligent world, and we've learned to fight you know, with our words and language. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, it's, it's like the old Francis of Assisi line, you know, always preach the gospel and use words only yeah, yeah. when it's necessary. Because the yeah. th- you can't just pass the faith on. We've talked about this before because there's no way that we can just pass pass it on. It, yeah. it, it is communicated through relationship and by the means of relationship, which is what you're alluding to there. Yeah, it's, and, it's and modeling, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, I'm like the man born blind. Mm-hmm. You can tell me all you want about your theology, but I was blind and I can see. There is a consistency in my life. I have no addictions. I have, I'm the same person in every situation. I have no secrets, right? You can tell me all you want about how my theology is wrong. Explain to me how the coherence of my life has emerged inside of the context of what I believe. When, when what I used to believe couldn't produce anything that was mm. life-giving. Mm. So I'm, I'm the man born blind, surrounded by you know, people who have their theological opinions because they, they feel like their world's at risk. Mm. And, and I'm going like, yep, I'm, I'm him. You can excommunicate me if you want, but I, you had already done that. You know, the system didn't work. And, um, and so I can see. What are you going to do? You know, and um, so my own journey, my own movement towards wholeness has become an apologetic for some of this conversation (laughs) that is theological. A a criticism of you for many years after the shack was he's a universalist. I know. uh, Isn't that great? And then in I think in your latest book, Lies We Believe About God, you basically come out and said, yeah, yeah, fair enough. And that I guess it depends on how you define universalism, because um, and, and just as an aside, it's like. So someone who believes that God can reconcile the entire universe back to himself 
that bothers you, <laughs> you know, and, um, and, and universalism, uh, I now let's make this clear. I believe in universal salvation that when Christ died, we died. And when he rose, we rose that everyone is included no in, one's left out. in the life. Yep. And that it was done. Now it's not an issue of a work of salvation or a transaction. It's, it's like, do you want your eyes open to see the truth of who you are as you were included in Christ or not? And if you, if you don't, I'm sorry, but Jesus is going to pursue you forever, mm. right? And you're going to have to continue to say no, potentially forever. And can someone do that? I don't know how, but yes. I mean, the p possibility has to be there. The tension in scripture doesn't allow me to step over into a doctrine of universal salvation. I hope it's true. That's why I say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a hopeful universalist. That is, mm -hmm. I hope that prior to the creation of the universe, God in God's wise counsel, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit figured out how to win back without the coercion of will mm -hmm. every single human being who's ever been conceived. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I hope that's true. And it, and Colossians says, we pray that that's true. But in terms of the work of salvation, you know, you've got these three different tenses, but the finished work is the finished work. You know, God does, Jesus does not have to die again for anyone. And, um, and so that salvation is universal. It covered the entire cosmos. Now we get to work it out because because our participation in this becomes critical. Mm -hmm. So what God has worked in, you get to work out with the Holy Spirit, with the, you know, the guidance of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, um, and so that's an ongoing process, um, mm -hmm. um, process if you're Canadian <laughs> and, or Australian. And, um, but again, that's kind of where I run into a theological perspective that is contrary to that that says no it's still about transaction mm -hmm. even calvin and luther their their big declaration is that forgiveness precedes confession and repentance mm -hmm. which changed the world and now mm -hmm. we've gone back to no you still have to confess and repent before you're forgiven mm -hmm. not true mm -hmm. not true the gospel of the early church has always been inclusive of the entire cosmos mm -hmm. and so i'm not saying anything that's new um, i'm sitting on irenaeus mm -hmm. athanasius mm -hmm. hillary and the early church mothers and fathers and that right. are going like, no, this includes the entire cosmos. You got included whether you know it or not. I have a friend who goes into prisons and uh, he'll go up to a, a, a convict, and an inmate, and he'll go like, hey, have you heard the news? Like, what? You're included. What do you mean I'm included? You're included in the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You were included before the foundation of the world. You know, Ephesians 1. And he says, invariably when I tell them this, their eyes will get wide and then they'll start telling me all the reasons that they can't be. That's right. You know, they'll start confessing what they've done. And he said, no, this is not about what you've done. This is about God and what God has done. This is not of works, lest anyone should boast. Mm -hmm. You know, this is when, if I be lifted up, I will drag all men to myself. This is a true and worthy statement that Jesus Christ is the savior of all mankind especially believers. And I think Paul's writing to Timothy going like, yeah, I know you've got a community of faith, but you got to remember they're included too. Yeah. And so it's just, you know, so universal salvation, I'm there. Universal reconciliation, I'm hopeful, mm. but I don't hold to it as a doctrine. And um, that's where I think people confuse some of 
some of what I say. I suppose it's almost like um, if it's not, if, if anyone is excluded, that could be me. And you know what I mean? And and that and I know I'm not, this. so it must be you. Yeah, well, that's it. <laughs> so, you know, I think it, it when you find the oneness of it all and the, the yeah. deep connection of it all, then, then uh, it can't be an exclusive thing necessarily. Well, this point. is why John starts his gospel with relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the son turned toward the father. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Word, the Greek word pros turn toward face to face and nothing that has come into being has come into being apart from him which means creation is created in christ you won't meet a person who is not in christ and you won't meet a person who christ is not in Mm. you know and and this is our thing we believe in separation that's what religion has done and told us Mm. it's not true Mm. you know it's the delusion of separation and um and, and we love the darkness. This is John's whole gospel is aimed at exposing the fact mm. that we're committed to darkness and Jesus is the light. Mm. And so he's come into our darkness to expose mm. us in mm. order that we might be expressors of light, which is our nature. Yeah. One last question for yes. me, Paul. Um, and before I do ask it, I will just say that The Heart of Man is coming to cinemas nationally around Australia um, for two nights on the 26th and 27th of yep. June. So uh, you can go to heartofmanmovie.com.au for that and see um, Paul's involvement in that film. Um, before we, we do wrap it up, you've lived quite an extraordinary life from obviously being a missionary kid in a tribal culture, you know, um, suffering some horrendous things when you were young. Uh, I've heard you speak before about working three jobs and, you know, kind of uh, working to the bone almost to provide for your family. And now this phase of your life where, you know, you're you're helping spread the light to to so many people. And I guess on your journey, you'd you'd meet people on all different stages of the journey of awareness of God's life. Very much. What would be, because I imagine listening to this, there would be people similar to where you are, aware of their, their nature of being loved, there'd be people who can't even comprehend the idea they could be loved and everywhere yep. in between. Yep. What would be if you could give one piece of wisdom from your life mm. to pass on to them, everyone at any stage on the faith journey, what, what would you say? I would say ask. You know, all of us have a safe place inside. You know, maybe it was when we were a child. For me, it's a rainstorm. For some, it's a beach. Some, it's on top of a mountain. Some, it's under a tree. You know, but we have a safe place. So what I would say is go inside to that safe place. Ask Jesus to show up and have a conversation. You know, transformation is it happens because you have the ability to hear the Holy Spirit for yourself. You have the ability to hear God. This is, this is intrinsic. You know, God is a good communicator. And, um, and so have that conversation. Um, the, the journey is so unique because of the uniqueness of who you are and the damage that's been done to you and by you and your experiences and all that, that there's no formula for healing. Only a God who made, made you. But understand that it is process. This is not a quick fix. There is no extreme soul makeover. There is, this is a... This is a journey. This is incremental, and um, and and it's you've got to commit to the long to the long haul, not not to the quick fix. We're too incredibly crafted for quick fixes. It just doesn't happen. But it's going to happen inside the context of relationship, both 
human relationships where you, where you allow yourself to be exposed and then also your relationship with God where you become authentic and honest in that as well. But, you know, have that conversation. Start it somewhere. And the best place is to go to the place that is safe for you. Amazing. Well, this has been a, an absolute honor, Paul. Thank you so much honor for your for time. Honor for me as well. Thank you. Two-Way Street. Thank you, Paul. And, and we'll you. be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly.